Hello and welcome. This is On Mike with Jordan Rich, the podcast that focuses on conversation with creative people with inspiring messages and a lot to share. Joining me today is a good friend, Bob Rosenberg. I've known Bob for the last five years, and we occasionally hang out together. He's known to many, many people as the former CEO of Dunkin' Donuts. And he's written a book that he's promised to do for a long time, all about the experience of running Dunkin' Donuts with business and life lessons galore. The book is brand new. It's called Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned Running Dunkin' Donuts. As I sit here with a tall Dunkin' regular and a Kreller donut, I'm thrilled to welcome to the podcast a man who's done so much for the culture and for business, bringing us all Dunkin' Donuts. Thank goodness. Bob Rosenberg joins us on mic. The book is called Around the Corner to Around the World by Robert M. Rosenberg, 35-year CEO of Dunkin' Donuts. I think the title is so apt, Bob, because I grew up in this area as you did and I know where it all started, but I also know when I travel overseas or to an island or somewhere west of uh, the Mississippi, I need to know there's a Dunkin' Donuts there. That's the way I feel. It warms my heart to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as I said, I think there are around the world, there are five million customers who start their day with a cup of Dunkin' Donut coffee and their favorite uh, baked goods. So whether it's a donut or a, or a muffin or a bagel. And uh, that's a heartwarming thought. It, it, uh, it's nice to know that, that you have so many loyal customers and, and you have a, an opportunity as a, as a business to, to provide a little smile and a little sort of bounce to people's steps as they start their day every day. And uh, we love being a part of that and I love being able to do that to our customers and well, for our customers. The book is the story of the evolution of the business when you took over for your dad. And that's kind of interesting in itself because you were just a, a recent, very recent graduate from Harvard Business School at 25. Tell me more about that. Well, it was a, it was a, a sort of a pivotal turning point for both my father, who was only 47 years old uh, and who had founded the business and the company itself. Uh, my father had started uh, after the Second World War and a business he knew, which was basically de developing trucks that went around to factory sites and construction sites, serving coffee hand and sandwiches to, to workers. And the business was growing. My dad, an eighth grade educated guy, basically thought he needed some help. And he brought in his brother-in-law, a CPA and a guy he admired as his full partner. And that business continued to grow. But his vending machine started to come on the scene. The business started to falter, and they decided to diversify, and they opened up a donut shop in the Southern Artery in Quincy in 1948. It was called Open Kettle. And through a series of happenstances, they basically remodeled it and rechanged the name to Dunkin' Donuts and launched the business. But the partnership faltered. And when it reached five stores, they broke up, and my father bought my uncle out for the then book value of the business. Did my uncle proceed to do it? He took that proceeds, and he decided to open a competitive donut chain called Mr. Donut. Uh. And the two companies, uh, rife with all kinds of family conflict, uh, dueled it out for a number of years. And um, a few years later, and eight years later, when I came on the scene, basically Mr. Donut was the same size as Duncan. And my father had diversified the business, opening pancake houses and hamburger stores, Howdy Beef and Burger, some New Englanders may remember, mm. was our chain, and uh, a cafeteria company and a vending company. And Mr. Donut, without burdened of all those different businesses, was flourishing, and we were sort of stagnating. My dad tried to sell the business uh, for a million and a half dollars back in those days. My second year in business school, he had taken me with him to New York when he was uh, approaching a private equity buyer. 
to try to buy the business, but because profits had stagnated, he wasn't able to get the million and a half dollars that after taxes would lead him to be the millionaire he always wanted to be. Hmm. And it was against that backdrop uh, that a few weeks after my graduation, he turned to me and asked if I wouldn't take on the responsibility as president and CEO. Pretty awesome responsibility at that age, even though you knew a little bit about the business. Didn't you say that you filled in for some of the managers over time when you were a student? I virtually, uh, uh, figuratively grew up over the store. I, I did all kinds of jobs all the way through uh, high school and through college. And in between college and graduate school, I I, uh, I actually helped do the, uh, the spade work to launch our beef and burger business by going to work for McDonald's in their first location in Greater Boston uh, near the bridge in, the, in Weymouth, Mass. So I had a number of jobs. I worked in the kitchen. I pushed canteen carts. I, I worked in the bakery. Um, I had spelled managers on, on vacations when I was in college. When they, when they went on their vacations, I took over and managed the stores in Stoneham and in Somerville in the summers. So I had, I had experience in the business. I, I'm a, a believer in a, in a maxim that uh, Malcolm Gladwell so outlined in his, I think, 2008 book called Outliers. He said, success sort of leaves a, a trail. And if you look closely enough, you'll find that most people who are successful, most things that are successful people have practiced an apprentice for 10,000 mm-hmm. hours mm-hmm. in their trade. And I think that maxim is true, and I believe that. And mm-hmm. so do I did spend my 10,000 hours, it <laughs> probably was over eight or 10 years, but I did that uh, working in different jobs in the company. Before we go on and talk a little bit about the path and the arc that it took, let's talk a little bit more about your father, who was a larger-than-life guy, sort of soaked up all the energy in the room when he came in. For all his successes, you point out the issue that he had with hubris and why that was something that you took as a lesson. Tell me more about your dad. Uh, my dad and I were very different people. We had different life experiences. He uh, he dropped out of school in the eighth grade. He, uh, he had a knack for, uh, he was a real... Uh, enterprising young man. He had delivered posts for the Western Union in those days, and he even went so far as to sell ice in Rockingham Park on hot days, uh, and by crawling in under the, under the, under the link fence to do it. He, he was very entrepreneurial, very resourceful, very savvy, but he and I had different uh, styles and sort of different beliefs. We had different life experiences. And I, I honor and love my father. He gave me a phenomenal opportunity at a young age that worked out well for me and for the business. But it didn't come without its challenges. He was a hard man, very demanding, um, and uh, had, had always had his foot out the door because he was a child of the Depression. So he was always looking to sell the business. And I had a hard time trying to keep us in. Uh, I loved what I was doing. The business started off. Uh, I changed the strategy. Our team did. And we started to have a lot of success. And it was hard to have uh, one eye on who was going to buy us and another eye and trying to run the business on a day-to-day basis, change the strategy and beat Mr. Donut, which was really one of our major <laughs> objectives in those early years. Right. So it was, it was both a wonderful opportunity 
but a big challenge. The book uh, starts off with a chapter on the Halcyon days, the first era, and it takes us all the way up to the time when uh, you left and the Brits had taken over at that point, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But I'm not a business major by any stretch. I'm married to one, but I, I learned a lot about general business sense and understanding and just to explain how you broke down the book for those people who are listening who haven't read it yet, how did you break it down in terms of leadership choice? Basically, the book is broken into six parts over the 35 years that I stewarded the business. and Each is a different era with a different set of challenges. Business as life and continually changes. In business, it's constantly changing customer base and what they want and need and basically always changing competition. So it was six eras, and I viewed each era through what I saw was the critical elements of, of a leader. It was basically being responsible as a steward for strategy, which is deciding what the company wants to be and have. Organization, finding the right people and keeping them and motivating them in order to help you to achieve that, that strategy. Third uh, responsibility, as I saw, overriding responsibility, was for... Uh, the CEO to lead communications to continually try to talk to all elements and all constituencies within the business to keep everybody aligned behind the plan and the strategy. And the last and fourth activity I saw as the leader's responsibility primarily was how to respond in times of crisis. The world is, I call it stochastic, in other words, stuff happens, and sometimes in very unexpected ways, and you have to be prepared to be able to take the lead, take full responsibility, and lead the team through to the other side. And those are the four activities I saw through the six eras. And that's how I broke the book down. And I, I find that even in families, you know, leadership exists in the country, and in a family, and in a business, and in a community. And so irrespective of what role anyone has, I think they have to face those kinds of different functions. Uh, you have to be responsible for planning where you want to be, what you want to be, and what you want to have. Mm -hmm. You have to organize people, and you have to communicate to get people aligned, and you have to be prepared to deal with whatever crises comes into your life. So I found it to be useful not only in a business sense, but quite truthfully in my own personal life. I use the same framework and processes. Mm. We're talking with Robert Rosenberg. Bob is his name to me. I'm a good friend, and his book is Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned Running Dunkin' Donuts. And I promise, listeners, we're going to get to the fun stuff, Fred the Baker and the Munchkin story and more, but a little bit more about the, the background. What, what really struck me, Bob, was the amount of interplay that was necessary, of course, with the franchisers and those who were franchisees. You've got so many individual pieces as part of this big network, the importance of connection with these individuals. Tell us more about the franchise model that you have. The franchise model is a, is a wonderful opportunity that's generally not as well understood by people as it should be. It combines the benefits of a large organization that can worry about formatting a business and sourcing product and, and mobilizing activity with the resources of an on-site entrepreneur, someone who's in business, skin in the game, who executes the business in a local region uh, through the issue of a license. And um, it, it, it pro there are about almost a million franchise businesses in the United States. There's probably 100,000 growing every year. And... Uh, it is really a pathway to success, both for uh, uplifting a family and its income and its opportunities, uh, and it can lead even to untold wealth. As you look in a lot of communities, 
you'll see that the automobile dealer, which is a form of a franchise, and uh, and or the John Deere dealership or the McDonald's franchisee or the Dunkin' Donuts franchisee are often members, um, sort of the pillars of the community. And it is a wonderful opportunity. In my case, uh, basically, uh, after five years of leading the company and changing the strategy from what existed when I joined, I basically made some terrible decisions and uh, broadened the business, not keeping it focused as a donut and coffee company, but as a franchise business. We ran into trouble. My franchisees started to falter, and there was real frayed relationships. And I remember so distinctly, it was in the early 70s, I was sitting in my chair reading a book called uh, The Best and the Brightest by David mm. Halberstam. Mm. And he was recounting the problems of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations in in managing the Vietnamese War, and basically suggested that the the best and the brightest who were in government for the United States weren't going out into the hamlets and villages where people's hearts and minds were being shaped. And as a result, we were losing the war. And I said, "Oh my God, we're doing the very same thing." And so I basically vowed, sitting in that chair, that as leaders we would take full responsibility, never blame the followership for the problems of the business. And we began to start visiting, each of us, including myself, over 100 stores a year, talking and working with our franchisees. And and we invited them in to help us fix the business and fix the strategy, which they did willingly. And we never looked back from that point on. But it was a, it was a low point in the company. And uh, it was a result of errors that I had made in judgment by picking the wrong strategy and luckily didn't go too far when we were able to recover. Yeah. And interestingly, the board had actually had a meeting, <laughs> asked, asked my resignation, and I told them I thought we had solved the problem. Give us another quarter, because yeah. I measured by quarter to quarter earnings. I said, you'll see some changes. I left the room. They debated my future for a couple of hours, and when I rejoined the room, they decided to give me another quarter, and then we were off and running, and never looked back from that. But right. but it was it, it was a tumultuous time. Well, it comes in any life for sure of a business or a person. As I was reading the book, I kept thinking, you make a change. Now, this is for the consumer, something that is so regular in their lives. And nothing is more regular than going to a Dunkin' Donuts prior to this change I'm going to refer to, getting the coffee in the ceramic mug, sitting at a stool at the counter getting served. And then you realize things in life and culture are changing. So expediting service, no more counters and paper cups. You even write about being on the Jerry Williams show, a famous local talk show host, and getting some flack from people big time. I mean, those kinds of changes have to be made maybe, but they're not easy when they're made. People are slow to come around. you got a good memory, yes. Yeah, I was on Jerry Williams' talk show, and, and I, was gonna, I was there to talk about the opportunities and the, the, the real opportunity for franchising. <laughs> and no one called in with a question about franchising. They called in to revile me because I had taken away their porcelain cups and they questioned yeah. my counter, and soon I was a, I made the decision to take smoking out of the store. And uh, that was another important turning point. But it is amazing how what seemingly seems simple steps, like replacing the question mark counter in the porcelain cups with paper cups and remote seating and banquettes or, or, or tables and chairs, spelled a huge difference mm. in, in how we did business and how the business flourished. And it changed the mix between bakery goods and, and donuts and coffee, they flipped. And uh, 
it was all because of a, of a simple change. And I'd have to say that those changes were pioneered by pioneering franchise owners who experimented and right. asked permission to change the business in a way to experiment. And those experiments showed themselves to be really worthy. And then we adopted them and rolled them out nationally and internationally. Well, speaking of individual franchisees who were creative, and you even used the word rolling out, let's get to the Munchkin <laughs> story, which uh, you told me over lunch one time, and I just, I was captivated. I love the, the fact that the book details it, and you give credit where credit is due. Where did the Munchkins and how did the Munchkins come to be? Years ago, when I was a kid and I was working in donut shops, around Halloween, we would take these little cellophane bags and we'd put them in the clip strips like you put potato chip bags in, and we'd powder them and we'd take the centers out of the first cut cake donuts and, and sell them just the week before or around Halloween time because we thought they might be a good trick-or-treat item. And back, I think it was 1972, I got a call from a franchise owner in Hartford, Connecticut, a guy by the name of Bob Demery, and he says, I have to tell you, my wife, Edna, has created and made up a new cutter so that we have bigger donut holes and she's filled them with jelly and with other fillings and she's put all different kinds of finishes on them. We pile them high in the front case and our business is up 12 or 20%. I can't remember the exact amount. So uh, myself and Tom Schwartz, who was the COO of the company and the head of marketing got in my car and we drove down to Hartford the next day and sure enough, here were these these donut holes going out in in masses. People loved them. Uh, they were about one fifth the size of a of a donut, about one fifth the calories. And um, we we knew right then and there when we went to Hartford that we had a winner. And uh, and Edna Demery was the source of this inspiration <laughs> and this idea. We hired an advertising firm called Hill Holiday, which is at the time was a small agency, and. Uh, and uh, they had represented us in the hamburger business. We had Howdy Beef and Burger, and we were, and they had suggested that we call them Penny Poppers. And we thought that was a cute name, but you know, given the gas shortage and the escalation and inflation that was occurring in the '70s, we couldn't keep them at a penny a, a piece. And then they suggested, why don't we try uh, to look for uh, the name Munchkins? Uh, and those years, every year. Um, whoever owned the film, or MGM, I guess, uh, would take out a national television spot around Easter time and show The Wizard of Oz. And the munchkins were the little people in Oz that, that would march around. We thought that was a great idea, and we checked, and no one really, some Jack's Cookie Company, I think, in Louisiana, owned the name, but they weren't using it. So we, we uh, leased it or acquired the rights for a dollar a year to the name, and we began to launch uh, the introduction of munchkins and, and sizes. You could buy one individual munchkin, or you could buy a, um, a, a box of, of 10 or 20 and a bucket of 30. And uh, it was a huge success, an overnight success. During a difficult time in the early 70s, it was a difficult mm. time for retailing with gas shortages and gas lines. And, right. And uh, Sunday businesses were being curtailed. It was a really a difficult time in America. I love that and, story. Anyways, it was, it was the launch of a, of a really <laughs> wonderful new product that's still viable and viable. 
vibrant to this very day, years and years later. There's another interesting story out of an international trip you took to Manila, and people would say, where is he going with this? Again, we're talking about the evolution of a company over many, many decades. This occurs in Manila by accident when you realize they're doing something that you could apply here. What were they doing back then? We had issued some international licenses, and we had issued a license in the Philippines to uh, two families, uh, the Spakowskis and the Prietos. And Prietos uh, was was an old Spanish family which uh, had migrated to the Philippines when it was under Spanish rule. And the Spakowskis, I think John Spakowski had served in the war in the Philippines and married a Filipino woman. And but lived in Hartford, and they bought the rights, and and uh, they had taken a number of very wealthy uh, partners to own the franchise. And uh, and in Manila, when they started, uh, word had gotten back to us that they were taking the the donuts and starting to open up in uh, in convenience stores and in um, gas stations selling coffee and donuts. Out of the out of the original stores in Makati, which is the wealthy suburb of Manila. So I was on my way to Asia, anyways, uh, uh, to visit our stores in Japan, and my role was to go to Manila and convince the Spakowskis and the Prietos to stop doing that because Fred the Baker says I bet supermarkets don't that. We make our donuts fresh and we don't deliver them. And I get to Manila and only to find out that that the outlets, these distributed outlets in, in uh, different spots and gas stations and in theaters and in convenience stores are really being run by the wives of the owners of the board members that own the franchise. And these wealthy families, what they were doing is taking their household help and their little jitneys powering product around the city of Manila everywhere. And uh, while I was there for two days, uh, Leo Prieto, who ran the business, was smart never to raise the issue with me. He would sit me at, at different events that we had to open a, a Dunkin' Donut University there in, in Manila and other things that I was there to, to, to officiate at to convince me of the merits he had, each of the wives that were running these businesses. And I had, didn't have the heart to turn them down. And basically they put in the back of my head the notion that maybe they had discovered a better way to go to market. That by taking the business beyond the four walls of the store to wherever people shop, work, traveled, or played, that we may have a, a better offering and a better business and can reconfigure the whole business. It was a little bit like what must have happened on my mind to Coca-Cola when they decided to put it in a bottle and have it travel because <laughs> heretofore they had only sold Coca-Cola over soda fountains and drugstores. Right. And it was revolutionary, and it changed the business in dramatic ways. That and moving away from the question mark counter in the 80s really unleashed the potential of the business and really set it on its path, along with some other things mm. like increased advertising that we had done in the 70s. Uh, it, these are sort of the key turn points, and it does show that uh, the impact of innovation and responding to changing tastes. 
You mentioned advertising, and it's about time we brought him up, although you did also bring his name up, Fred the Baker. You deserve a break today. Everybody knows that one. But if you're from New England, particularly, or the Northeast, or actually most of the world, you know time to make the donuts. And I love the story of the actor and you, your relationship, and and this campaign that went on for well over a decade. Tell us a little bit more about Fred and why you think he was so impactful. We had an advertising agency in New York called Alley, Carl Alley, who was sort of legendary, like uh, kind of a Jimmy Jimmy Breslin kind of guy. Uh, And he... uh, he, he, when he became our agency, he did some experimentation with uh, the brand, and he had developed uh, and borrowed a guy by the name of Michael Vale, who had served as the breakstone man in the turn of the century ad, where a dog would come up and bite him in his leg, and he was just a memorable character. And he had him do a series of commercials, a sort of experimentation, uh, called "Time to Make the Donuts." It was a lighthearted approach to what was a very hard-hitting campaign to contrast our product and the differences and the steps we went to as opposed to what supermarkets did, which was then our competitor. All local bakeries, for the most part, had long gone from the scene and replaced by supermarket bakeries, and, and that was our competition. And it happened. Uh, we had just experimented with it. We hadn't committed ourselves to a campaign and I, I had a home in those days in Florida, which our family went to uh, during during school vacations and such. And I'm coming back, and I'm on the airplane, and uh, I hear someone talk to his friend. Oh, so you're going back to Boston? He said, yeah, it's time to make the donuts. And I realized <laughs> then that we had sort of struck a chord yeah. for anybody who was talking about having to do hard work at hard times. And that became our campaign. And it ran for 17 years Mm. with Michael Vail representing, as he coined it, Fred the Baker. And won uh, three Clio Awards, which is the advertising um, comparison to the Academy Awards for advertising. Top top honors. It was a wonderful campaign that carried us through to the early 1990s. And you even had a big celebration when it was time for Fred, quote unquote, to retire. downtown Boston right at Copley Square. Fred went in a big open-air convertible. We had different people advising Fred on how to retire, one of whom was Larry Bird, who had just retired. And Hmm. it was all befitting, uh, you know, uh, a guy who had served us for almost two two decades as our spokesman. But at that moment in time, we basically had decided we were moving away to focus more not on on donuts as much as we were on beverages and on coffee and other beverages. And uh, so he had served us loyally and well, and we gave him a, a farewell befitting uh, uh, all of the work that he had done to right. help build the brand. He was a lovable character. I had actually worked with him. We would work one day a year in stores, and that was sort of a policy we had to keep us close to the customer. And I was working with him in the Southern Artery, our original store, and uh, the lines out the door to get his autograph were absolutely <laughs> immense. And, and wherever he would go, he took huge pride in that. He would, yeah. he would wear his Dunkin' Donuts uniform. And um, and he he was beloved by a lot of people. He was a real personality, a lovely man, a lovely guy. 
Wow. Great story. One of my takeaways before we let you go in the book, besides all the great information and and suggestions and advice, is the fact that you are mentioning so many people who were part of the team along the way, from the franchisees to the corporate board members to everybody who helped and made a difference. Some who didn't make a difference are in there too, but talk a little bit with me about the importance of surrounding yourself with the right people, because it seems to me that uh, with few exceptions, you were able to, as the leader, bring the right people in at the right time. How important was and is that to your your success? Oh, it's critical. I mean, basically, uh, business is a team activity, um, and I think that most activities in life are, and even families. And I, I have found uh, that when you look behind the scenes, when you lift the curtain and look at success either in a family or, a, in, or even a community or a business, you'll generally find more than one person. There may be one person that may be the spokesperson for the brand or the business, but you will generally find at least one and maybe often a number of people that love each other, support each other, uh, that that make for an effective organization. And that's at the core, I think, of the success Duncan had. There were 10 to 15 of us from time to time that served almost 20 years together. And there was little backbiting, little politics. And we shared a common aspiration. We were very much believers in the complementarity of each other. In other words, uh, I'm a great believer that each of us comes with strengths and weaknesses. And it's important to understand those strengths and weaknesses. And it's better to build on strengths and not try to remediate weaknesses and to try to surround yourself with people who complement you. And Mm. the team that understands that and the complementarity and the fact that there's no great fault by not being good at everything or having the answer to every issue, that fundamentally you're really so much better off if you surround yourself with people who in many instances and different specialties are far smarter than you are and far more able. Also impressive is the fact that you did all this to build a business for you, the people in your life, the employees, the franchisees. But as important, you built this business for us, (laughs) for ordinary Joes and Janes who love the product. It is part of our lives. I mean, even as it's morphed over the years. So that, that must make you feel pretty good. As I matured from a 25-year-old to a 60-year-old when I ultimately retired in those 35 years, it's clear to me that businesses are there for not just making money. They, that can't be the objective. The objective really is, is to add value to people's lives in some form. And someone might say, well, it's just donuts and coffee. But the fact is that it does add a bit of joy to people's day. And that's a gratifying thing to be able to do. And I think that's at the heart of why the brand has done well and why the business has done well. It's been that essential sort of flame that keeps us going, and and that's at the heart of it. And uh, we're committed very much to that. My team was, and I know the management, the succeeding managements have done a phenomenal job on building on that. And special thanks to that Maine sea captain in the 1800s who poked a (laughs) hole. I read your book, my friend, who poked a hole and created the whole concept. (laughs) The whole concept. But... Yes, yes. Bob, I want to thank you so much, not only for writing this book and joining me, but for being a great friend. It's been a delight. I feel the same way, Jordan. Thank you very much. 
It's always a good time to eat the donuts. I want to thank my good friend Bob Rosenberg. What a delight. And his book is really terrific. Around the corner to around the world, a dozen lessons I learned running Dunkin' Donuts. Also want to thank the supporters and staff of the podcast, Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media and Ken Carberry, my brother from another mother and partner at Chart Productions. Thanks to all of you for listening, for subscribing, downloading, and rating and reviewing the podcast. Until next time, when the conversation continues, this is Jordan saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.